This is really a message for disciples. And in this passage, we're going to see three things, among others, but three major elements, which is first, an ancient human sacrifice that was stopped before it could be completed. And then we'll also see uh, a terrible wrong that someone seeks to undo but is unable to undo. And finally, we'll see a mathematical impossibility. All of these three seemingly disjointed elements will combine as we see the trial of Jesus as he heads to the cross. And so we begin by seeing uh, the transition from the first trial before the Jews to now what we might think of as the second trial, the trial before the Romans in verses 1 to 2. Notice it says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. The first trial was continued until Friday morning. You might remember in the Jewish system, Passover began uh, on Friday evening. So Jesus is soon to go to the cross here. But before that, he has to be officially condemned by the Romans. And so the Jews have turned him over to the Romans. And the religious leaders have handed him over because they are not allowed to condemn anyone. They didn't have the power of capital punishment. And so they had to hand him over to the Romans in order to enact that death penalty. But before Caiaphas, the religious leader, you might remember, what was the charge against Jesus? Well, it was a religious charge in nature. But now when they take him before the Romans, the Romans don't care about their religion. And so uh, for the Romans, it needs to be a political charge, which is what the Jewish religious leaders bring to Pilate. Now, incidentally, in the last 2,000 years of church history, this is an important and intriguing point for us. Because many Christians who have been persecuted or martyred for following Jesus have fallen into the same uh, situation as Jesus, our example, our Lord and our Master, in the sense that um, even though they're not actually in any way, shape, or form a harm to any governmental system or any political philosophy, yet oftentimes the ultimate grounds on which a Christian is persecuted and or martyred in many countries of the world right up to the present day is on political grounds. They're seen as seditious. They're seen as untrustworthy. Well, they said the same thing about Jesus. But notice who gave the guilty verdict. As they hand him over, who's the one or who's the group handing him over? Well, it's, it's the council. It's the religious leaders, the elders. This is part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders or leaders of the Jewish nation. And they represented the people. They were the judges of Israel. And so here we see very clearly that the people, the nation as a whole, this is the sort of the, the last nail in the coffin for the nation because they have now officially, as a nation, overtly, publicly rejected their king, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. And that's also a cautionary tale to us, or you might say a bit of an application. In this sense, time and time again, we've seen in Matthew's Gospel this idea that the religious leaders, yes, they were responsible, but really they were representing the nation. So too, in our own day, we have not necessarily one group of leaders who are both our religious and political leaders. We split that apart in our particular society. But nevertheless, the principle holds true that we too are responsible for the leaders, religious and political, that we have to lead us. We have a culpability there, a responsibility. And we can't just throw up our arms and say, oh, well, that religious leader did this, or that political leader did this. Well, what part did we play in allowing them to represent us? Here we see evil leaders that had been called to represent the people, and of course they did great evil. 
But then we see Judas's remorse and the religious leader's hypocrisy in the next section. Judas's remorse. Notice something vitally important about this remorse. In verses 3 to 5, Judas, a disciple of Jesus who had betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders, he saw that Jesus was condemned, we're told in verse 3. And he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver that he had been paid by the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned. For I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They reply. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. He regrets what he did, but he doesn't repent of what he did. These These are two very different terms in the New Testament. What, what Judas has here is regret, remorse. The word uh, literally means to realize you've done something wrong and feel horrible about it, as Judas clearly does, but he fails to take the next step, which would have been repentance, which is to turn from the wrong you've done and ask for forgiveness from God for what you have done. He doesn't go that far. Someone has described repentance, true biblical repentance, as a change of heart and mind, turning from our sin, our choices, to God. And someone has helpfully made a, uh, a bit of a dichotomy here, a, a uh, distinction between what Judas has done and what the Bible says about repentance. That is, Judas had pain of mind, but no change of mind. He had pain of heart and soul, but no change of heart and soul. He returns the money, but the wrong cannot be undone. It's too little, too late. And his actions end with his suicide. Tragically, suicides continue to grow, especially in the Western world in recent decades. And it may be helpful to say something about that. So, so sadly today, many people think suicide is going to be the answer to the shame or the guilt that they feel, or, or the answer somehow to perhaps tragic circumstances in their life. And just like Judas, they think that's the way out, but it's not. It doesn't help. It doesn't actually solve the problem. And so I would implore you to do what someone should have implored Judas to do, which is go to Jesus, because he is the answer. You you may think there's no hope. there's, There's nothing that can change your circumstances. There's nothing that can take care of your despair. But I assure you, Jesus, he said, he is the hope of the world the hope of all mankind. And he alone can be your salvation if you'll go to him. Peter found this out. You remember Peter, just in the, in the previous chapter? He denied Jesus three times. But he didn't allow that despair to then turn into suicide. Or the ultimate despair, we might say. But rather, it led to his repentance and a seeking for forgiveness from Jesus. You can do the same, but Jesus... Jesus is the same Jesus that restored Peter, and he's the same Jesus that can restore any individual, no matter what your despair or discouragement or challenging circumstances. Despair does not have to lead to your end. Rather, Jesus can take that despair and can give you hope. We see also not only Judas's remorse leading to despair, but also the religious leader's hypocrisy. Notice what they say here. When, when Judas comes to them and says, I betrayed innocent blood, I've sinned, Now, remember, these are the religious leaders of Israel. They were supposed to help the people with religious issues, like sin, guilt, shame. 
And Judas, one of the people, comes to them and says, I have sin, guilt, shame. And they say, ah, we don't care. What? They don't care about truth or justice. They don't care about his sin, guilt, or shame in the least. Why does that matter to us? I mean, we're only the judges of Israel. We've only been tasked with doing what God wants us to do, with preaching and teaching and and extolling and leading through justice and truth and the law of God, but we don't really care about that, Judas. They purposely condemned an innocent man. Now, from the perspective of the religious leaders, notice also what they do with the blood money. They were right. It's unlawful in a Jewish system for them to use this 30 pieces of silver that they had paid to Judas. He throws it back, and they say, well, according to the law, we're not allowed to use blood money and use it for temple purposes. So what can we do with it? And they come up with a brilliant solution. They say it's it's spiritually or, or ceremonially unclean money. So what we will do is we will buy an unclean cemetery, because dead bodies were ceremonially unclean. We'll buy an unclean cemetery or a piece of land to use as a cemetery so that we can bury unclean pagans in it, foreigners who don't believe in our God, and we can purchase it with unclean money. Perfect. What a great solution. But do you see the hypocrisy dripping from their every single word and their every single action? They say, oh, it's not lawful for us to use this money for temple purposes. But it also was not lawful for them to pay the money in the first place to betray an innocent man that they knew was innocent. It also was not lawful for them to accuse Jesus falsely. It also was not lawful for them, as we saw in chapter 26, for them to actively encourage false testimony against Jesus. It also was not lawful for them to have a sham trial that broke multiple other rules just so that they could get the desired verdict. It was also not lawful for them to be the leaders of Israel and actually just be religious charlatans playing for power, money, and authority. The religious leaders are stressing ceremonial purity, that's external conformity to certain laws, while ignoring what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, justice, truth, mercy. That is, the religious leaders once again show us that distinction between being merely externally religious and being a true Christian or a true worshiper of the one true God. But we also see some prophecies, or I should say more prophecies, fulfilled in verses 9 and 10. All of this is in the plan of God, and we see it beginning in verse 9. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the the 30 silver coins, the price set for him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Remember that 30 pieces of silver was the common price of a slave. And that's all that Judas was paid to betray Jesus, the king of glory. And we're told here that this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament passage in Jeremiah. It's actually sort of a composite prophecy being fulfilled here. Because it's from two passages in Jeremiah and one passage in Zechariah that the gospel writer Matthew is kind of thrown all together because they're talking about a similar thing. And that is about the Messiah and how he would be betrayed and killed. And so, even though Matthew mentions Jeremiah, that's not all he's quoting. But interestingly, as we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, you might remember time after time, Matthew has drawn our attention to certain Old Testament prophecies and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And he uses a particular formula, a particular phrase every single time. This is the tenth time that he's done this, the final time in his gospel that he's used this phrase, so it might be fulfilled, in order to fulfill, that sort of a phrasing. This is the tenth time. Now, that's not to say 
that Matthew has only pointed us to 10 illustrations of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. We've seen many more, but he's given 10 big ones. Now, interestingly, in in chapters 26 and 27, we actually see 15 different times that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, just in these two chapters. But Matthew, as he goes along, he's sprinkling in all these Old Testament prophecies, but he's, he's trying to give us a big, bold, neon sign 10 times. This is a specific, very detailed prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling, and that's what he's doing here. But here's where we see the mathematical impossibility I mentioned at the beginning. <clears throat> this is what is known in Christianity as an apologetic point. That is, uh, a point of evidence for the reliability of the Bible as God's word. Now, what I'm about to say does involve a few numbers, so if you're not a numbers person and mathematics isn't your thing, bear with me. The payoff is more than worth the the few moments of effort it will take. But this is an extremely important point for Matthew's point in the Gospel, for the whole of the New Testament and how it points to Jesus, and really the whole of Scripture and how we should understand it. So stick with me over the next two moments on this. There have been various estimations of how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. Part of it depends on exactly how detailed you define the word prophecy. But the lowest number is 191. 191 prophecies. Some say it's as high as 400 or more. But let's just take the lowest. 191 prophecies that are distinct predictions literally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus as he was on earth. Now remember that these predictions were made by multiple authors living in different time periods over more, of, more than a thousand year time gap. Most of them never knew each other as, as authors. Most of them never talked with one another, so they're not comparing and contrasting what they're writing. Each of them is predicting things about this Messiah, this King who is to come, 191 times. But all of it culminates in Jesus during a very short period of time, his life on earth, about 33 years. Now, there's a well-known text on biblical prophecy entitled Science Speaks. And in it, the author does a statistical analysis, that's part of his background, he does a statistical analysis of eight of these specific, detailed, literal prophecies coming true in one individual. What is the statistical likelihood that eight prophecies given over a thousand-year time period by different individuals would all come true in one individual in a short time frame? And the probability he found is one in one to ten to the seventeenth power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. All right. Then he goes on to consider, well, what about 48 prophecies? What if 48 prophecies were fulfilled? That would be about 25% of all the prophecies about Jesus. What's the likelihood there? This is a much larger number. It's 1 times 10 to the 127th power. Now, why is that important? Because in statistical analysis, in mathematics, it's generally accepted that once you get to, I mean, these are massive numbers, Once you get to a certain number beyond that point, whatever you're talking about, although it's technically possible on paper, you can write the number on paper in abbreviated form, it becomes humanly impossible. It's such a small probability or likelihood. And what we find is that number beyond which it's impossible for something to happen is 1 times 10 to the 50th power. But just for 25% of the prophecies to be fulfilled, It's 1 times 10 to the 127th power. 
well beyond any human probability. There is no possible way using normal human means that that is explainable. That's the point. That's the payoff. By the way, if you're interested in looking at all 191 of those prophecies and how detailed they are and where they come from, uh, there's a, a big book that talks all about that. It's the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. And once you're done reading it, you can use it as a doorstop because it's massive. All right? But this is the culmination of many, many theologians and historians and uh, mathematicians looking at these detailed prophecies. What is the likelihood? There is no ability, just using normal human means, for this to happen and all to culminate in the life of one individual. Only if there is a God who is guiding and directing human history only through supernatural means, the Bible says, could this have happened. And we see Matthew pointing us to these supernatural means time and time again that it might be fulfilled. Look at this prophecy, this prophecy, this prophecy. See how it all culminates in Jesus. What a glorious truth. Well, we go on. The second trial as we finish up verses 11 to 14. Uh, in one sense, this is actually the third trial. Uh, but for Matthew hasn't told us um, everything that the other gospel writers tell us. There was actually two Jewish trials and then one Roman trial. Uh, but Matthew has just highlighted the second of the Jewish trials. So in, in one sense, this is the third trial. But for Matthew's point, uh, for what he's told us, this is a second trial, one for the Jews and one for the Romans. He's kind of uh, accurately told us, but kind of conjoined the first two trials because he's um, trying to summarize for us and not give us all the details. But what we find here, verse 11, the king of the ages stands in front of a temporary provisional governor. Notice what's going on here, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Because that was the political charge. You, you cannot claim to be a king. Caesar alone in Rome is king. Anyone else who claims to be a king would be seen as seditious, trying to raise an army to try to take over Rome. He says, yes, it is as you say, or you have said so. Um, many different English translations translate this slightly differently. I'll explain why that is in a moment. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, so they're all present, they're giving these false charges against him, he gives no answer, once again fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 7. Verse 13, then Pilate asks him, don't you hear their testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus, again, made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner. And we'll see who that prisoner is going to be in the near future and what Pilate the governor does. But first notice with me here what's going on. Jesus replies to this question. When Pilate himself asks this point-blank question, Jesus does make one reply. Yes, it is as you say. That, that is Jesus' way, and a, in a particular way in the Greek language, to say, yes, but. We've seen this twice already. He said it to Judas when Judas asked, along with all the other disciples, is it, is it I, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And Jesus gave this sort of answer. Like, Judas, you, you know you're going to betray me. That was the, the intimation there. But then he gets it asked uh, again before Caiaphas asks him, uh, something And Jesus responds with a similar sort of thing. You have said it. And then he goes on to describe what he means. It's a way of saying, yes, you're right, but the terms you are using and the definitions you are using for those terms are wrong. So I need to re-explain what I mean by the term 
because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. So what does he mean? He says, yes, I am the king, but not in the way that you think about kingship. I'm not an earthly king like you want to be, Pilate. I'm not an earthly king like Caesar. My, my uh, kingdom does not arise from this world. Rather, my kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. Now, one day Jesus will be ruling and reigning on earth, but in his first coming, he came first and foremost to become what we might call a spiritual or heavenly king, to save us from our greatest issue, which was not bad political rulers. Our greatest issue was the sin in every human heart. And he came to do that. And so that's the, the primary thrust of his kingship. And everyone's misunderstanding it. The religious leaders have misunderstood it. The Romans are now going to misunderstand it, even though Jesus tries to explain. Notice also that all of which they accuse him is, is false. All that the religious leaders accuse him of is false testimony. Notice the contrast here. Matthew seems to be indirectly pointing it, to, pointing it out to us. Jesus is the innocent one who won't reply to the false accusations. Who are the guilty ones? All the people lying about Jesus to his face in the court of law. But remember what Jesus is about to do. If you are familiar with the gospel accounts and what Jesus is soon going to be doing, which is dying a horrible death on a cross to save us from our sins, part of that process of his atonement, of his making a way for us to be made right with God and have our sins forgiven, is he must take the guilt and shame and the sin of the world on his shoulders. And it's as if in this moment, he's, he's already starting that process. Every time someone comes and gives a false testimony, they lie about him. He's silent, and it's as if he says, yep, I'll take that sin too. I'll take your guilt for saying that about me, even though you knew it was a lie. I'll take that too. Pilate, your sin for what you're about to do, I'm taking that too. Jesus is the innocent one. And we see here his majestic dignity and his true kingship being stressed. It, by Roman law, a defendant had, uh, or I should say a defendant who refused to make a defense when accusations were brought against him on a capital charge like this, uh, if you refused to give a defense for yourself, then you were presumed guilty. Now, that's a little different than the way we work in our society where you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. But it worked a little different back then. But in order for justice to take place in a capital crime, you don't want to just kill anyone uh, who has a false accusation brought against them. And so it was required by Roman law that you give the defendant at least three opportunities to defend himself or herself with the accusations. And you notice in this passage, Pilate gives him two different opportunities that Matthew points out for us. But Jesus won't reply. And so... Pilate is understandably stunned. Why would any self-respecting person not respond to these sort of accusations? Because he could have easily said, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. They don't have any proof. And then it, it would have been thrown out. But Jesus doesn't do that, guaranteeing that he will be found guilty. Do, do you see the point here? Jesus is in control at every moment. Pilate thinks he's in control because he has Roman authority behind him. Caiaphas and the religious leaders think they're in control because they're bringing this against Jesus and they betrayed Jesus by using Judas. But they're not in control. Jesus is in control of the situation at every single moment. He could get out of it at any single moment. But he knows this is the will of the Father. He knows he must do it. And he, know he, he knows that he alone is able to die the death on the cross that we needed for our salvation. And this brings us to three conclusions. 
First, this passage and a passage like it should cause us to see and marvel at the culmination of Old Testament prophecy that Matthew points us to here in the person of Jesus. With what Jesus is doing, he is the culmination, as he told us in the Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. They all culminate in me, he says. That's what they pointed to. I am the genuine article. This is clearly a supernatural person following a supernaturally ordained plan. Secondly, we should learn something from the example of Judas by comparison and contrast. Remember we said this is a message in many ways for disciples, followers of Jesus. Do you remember at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, at the birth of Jesus, Joseph wondered about what was going on. We hear this this term, he wondered or he pondered what was going on. Later on in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 11, we see that John the Baptist doubted what was going on. And then just in the previous chapter, chapter 26, we see that Peter, one of his disciples, denies Jesus with what's going on. But those three are all contrasted with Judas, who betrays Jesus, despairs, and commits suicide. Because those other three were divinely helped to not stay in their pondering, doubting, denying position, but rather were helped by God to actually return to God, to repent, and then to grow into a deeper faith as a response. In sharp contrast to Peter's bitter sorrow, Judas causes himself to go beyond all spiritual help into despair, remorse, and suicide. But see that contrast? Wondering or, or, or pondering, doubting, denying, but not ultimately despairing. That is an excellent message for anyone who claims to be a disciple of Christ. There will be times where you wonder, you ponder, you doubt. Even the disciples will find when Jesus died and rose from the dead and was in front of them, it says, many of them believed and some of them still doubted. We are doubting creatures. Our faith is often weak. Circumstances come against us and we can often doubt, we can often wonder, we can often even deny Jesus in our words, and our actions. And every time we sin, that is a blatant denial of Jesus in many respects. But regardless of whether you are right now in the moment, if you are a true Christian, if you are wondering or pondering or doubting or even in the midst of sin and denying Jesus, don't allow it to go to despair as Judas did. Rather repent and turn back to Christ. There's a tragic example of this in more recent history. A man that I'm assuming most of you have probably never heard about, but at one time he was well known. Likely many of you have heard of Billy Graham, the Christian evangelist uh, of the last century especially. But as Billy Graham was a young man and early on in his uh, ministry as an evangelist and growing in popularity, there was another man who was a contemporary of his who was also a Christian evangelist. And he was actually more well-known than Billy Graham was early on. His name was Charles Templeton. But a few years later, Charles Templeton became very famous, especially amongst critics of Christianity, because he denied Jesus and rejected God. He wrote a book called Farewell to God. Now, later on in his life, towards the end of his life, uh, there was a journalist who interviewed him. I'm not sure if it was the last or one of the last interviews he ever gave, but among the many questions he asked this man, 
he brought up Jesus. He said, what about Jesus? What would you say about Jesus now? And it's very telling if you read the transcript of that interview. And there's also an audio recording. Templeton res responds this way. As tears fill his eyes and as his throat catches on the words that Jesus, I miss him. I miss him. See, Templeton had turned his back on Jesus. He had denied him, and he had allowed that to lead to his despair and his ultimate rejection of Jesus. And yet he realized he had given up something of tremendous value, but he was unwilling to go back. He was unwilling to repent and ask Jesus to restore him once again. What a tragedy. And this is a lesson for us as disciples. If you are a follower of Jesus, once you find Jesus... Hold on to him and never give him up. And if you find yourself wandering from him, rush back to him. Remorse over the wrong done and its consequences is distinctly different than true biblical repentant sorrow. There are two words, two very different words in the New Testament, two very different concept, uh, concepts. Which do you have? When confronted with your sin, are you just remorseful at the the unfortunate circumstances that come out of that, the un unnecessary consequences that you don't want to deal with or that you were caught, or do you actually care that you have offended a holy God, your creator? The way you know which response is yours is that second response will lead to genuine repentance. If you truly care that you have offended and sinned against the holy God who inhabits eternity, then you cannot help but run to Jesus as your only hope and salvation. I love what the Christian poet wrote here. He said, Lord, when I read the traitor's doom to his own place consigned, what holy fear and humble hope alternate fill my mind. Traitor to thee I too have been, but saved by matchless grace, or else the lowest, hottest hell had surely been my place. Anyone who is a true Christian, a true follower of Christ, understands that our sin makes us traitors to the God who made us. Every sin is another traitorous act of rebellion. But if we run to Jesus and hand him our sin, he gives us his wonderful goodness and righteousness, and then we can be saved by his matchless grace. And this bleeds into the third application or conclusion, which is one about human sacrifice. You remember we said there's a human sacrifice here that was interrupted and never fully completed. In John's Gospel, we're told something interesting about this section in Jesus' life as he goes to the cross. We're told when he goes to the first Jewish trial, he's bound. As he, leads, he goes from the garden, he's led from the garden to Annas, the former high priest. He's bound. And then Annas, in chapter 18 of John's Gospel, sends him to Caiaphas for the, the second more official trial, which is prolonged. And there, too, he is bound on his way. And then Caiaphas causes him to be bound to be sent to Pilate. Why? Why bind him? He didn't try to run away. One of his followers even took out a, soul, a sword and started hacking at one of the guards, and Jesus told him to stop. Jesus made no attempt to flee. He was happy to go with him. Why bind him? Well, no doubt, at least from their perspective, it was yet another way to humiliate him. But there, I think there's a connection that we should understand in the Old Testament here. Don't miss a parallel. In the Old Testament, you might remember Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. At one point, God tells Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only son, the son of promise, 
that I had prophesied I would give you, take him and sacrifice him on an altar on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham does. He takes his son, and Isaac is willing to lay on the altar, but yet Abraham binds him anyway, which is an interesting element in the, in the storyline, in the narrative there. He binds his son, lays him on the altar, and is about to sacrifice him, and God stops him. Why does God stop him? Well, there, there are many reasons. But one is that what God had told Abraham to do, God never intended Abraham to actually kill his son. Because God never allows and never demands, unlike many other religions in the world, the one true God of the Bible never allows or demands that his followers ever commit human sacrifice. It's an abomination to him. It's forbidden. He would never have allowed Abraham to go through with it. And instead, he provides a lamb to be the sacrifice. And Isaac goes free. The lamb redeems Isaac. That was the principle. That was the illustration that God, in his absolute knowledge, intended to speak to Abraham and to us. And it connects directly to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, too, is not trying to escape, and yet he's bound. But unlike Isaac, who gets out and a lamb is sacrificed, Jesus is God in human form, and he, that means he's the lamb of God who purposely came to be sacrificed. He would not allow a single one of his people, the people that he had called by his name, the people for whom he had always intended to die, the people that he would save, he would not allow a single one of them to be sacrificed for their own sins, although that's what we justly deserve. Rather, he would come himself, take on a human form, and be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, voluntarily, not against his will. The only and ultimate sacrifice in God's plan is Jesus. That was always the intention. That was always the plan from the foundation of the world. Jesus alone will be bound and brought, yet fulfilling another Old Testament passage, brought as a lamb to the slaughter. To be killed on the weekend of, of Passover and the Passover celebration, where they celebrated how God had allowed the blood of a lamb to be spread over the doorpost in Egypt so that the people living in those houses could be saved. And now here's Jesus shedding his own blood in a few moments' time on the cross so that his blood can cover all those who will come to him in repentance and faith. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's a glorious good news that we do not have to despair. We do not have to die for our own sins unless we choose to then we do have to pay the penalty for our sin. But if we will choose, rather, to accept what Jesus did for us and accept him and rely on him alone as the salvation, the Lamb of God, who can truly take away our sin, then he gives us what's called the great exchange in theology sometimes. The great exchange. What is that exchange? I give him all my sin, selfishness, guilt, and what does he give me in return? He gives me full pardon, his goodness, his love, his righteousness, and a relationship with God, my maker. It's the most imbalanced exchange that we could ever conceive of in the cosmos. And yet it's the most glorious truth. And that's why the author of this Christian poem was right when he said, I too, a traitor to thee, have been, but saved by matchless grace. You can remain a traitor or you can be saved by matchless grace. And once you've been saved by matchless grace, then go forward in your discipleship. Sometimes wondering, sometimes doubting, 
sometimes denying, but always returning to Jesus in repentance and faith, never despairing. Because once Jesus, once you realize Jesus has died for you, and that has been applied to your account, then you need never despair no matter what life brings your way. Because God, your maker, loved you enough to die for you, and he will keep you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message for disciples, for followers of you. We readily admit that all of us gathered together who claim to be your followers, we often lack the faith we should have. We often doubt when we shouldn't. Sometimes we deny you in our words or our actions. We ponder and wonder, and we can't figure out what you're doing sometimes. And we go astray too often. We ask your forgiveness, but I also ask that you would help us in those moments to not despair, but that we would run back to Christ who loves us more than anyone else. And I also ask, Lord, because I can't see any heart or mind in this congregation, you alone know each individual here. But I ask that for anyone here who does not yet know you, has not yet had their sins forgiven, and has not yet become a disciple of yours, that you would call them to yourself, that you would help them to understand the truthfulness of your word and the glory of Jesus, and that they would respond to you. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.